you didn't get a chance to grab an outline and you want to grab an outline, you, you may. It's, it's a pretty simple outline this morning. There's, there's four main points that should be fairly obvious. And if you recall last month, um, I started what I said was going to be a uh, kind of a two-part, two-part sermon. We're in 1 John still, right? 1 John chapter 2. So if you want, go ahead and take your Bibles and let's turn to 1 John chapter 2. And I began what I said was a two-part uh, a sermon, and I was calling it the reality of, of love. And when I actually began studying um, uh, for this uh, uh, sermon series, if you will, or, or this sermon, uh, over a month ago, a month and a half ago, I looked at the greater text, and I was like, all right, this is great. The reality of love, and God, last time we looked at, God gave us the command to love, which was part one, I said, of this two-part sermon. And I said that the second part we're going to look at is going to be the, the command to not love. So God gives us a command to love, and then he gives us a command to, to not love, okay? Um, so let's, let's look at this just first, an overview, First John chapter 2. And last month we looked at verses um, 7 through 11. So I'm going to read actually 7 through uh, 17 this morning, which encapsulates this reality to love, the command to love, the command to, to not love. Starting in verse 7 of 1 John chapter 2, John says, Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you. Because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. So that's what we looked at last time. This was the reality of love, the command to love. Beloved, love one another. John gives us that command in chapter 4, right? But that was the, the, the command to love, right? And then later on here in verses 15 through 17, we're going to see the command not to love. But there's kind of this, this section uh, of scripture in between that, verses 12 through 14, um, and it says this, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. And then in verse 15, we have the command not to love. He says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride and possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So when I began over a month ago, I thought, all right, this is great. Two-part sermon series reality of love, the command to love, the command to not love, right? It's obvious we've got this command to love in verses 7 through 11, right? In verses 15 through 17, we've got this command to not love, but we've got this passage, this section of scripture in the middle, verses 12 through 14, dealing with, I'm writing you children, young men, fathers, children. And a month ago, I thought, oh, I'll just, I'm sure somehow that I'll put that in with the command not to love. I, I was just one section of scripture at a time. I didn't want to deal with it until I got to this month studying for it. And then this month came. 
And, and I had to ask myself, what, what, is, what is this section doing here, right? I mean, because John could have gone from, you know, verse 11, right, straight to verse 15. I mean, we could, we could almost cut this section out, 12 through 14, and it would still flow, and it would flow nicely, right? Um, but it's there, and it's there because not simply John put it there, it's there because God put it there, right? And so we have this, we have this address in the middle of this, this overall section on to love and, and to not love. And so because God put it there, we, we have to deal with it. And that's what we're going to do this morning. You know, what, what is John, what is John doing? And, and as I examine that this morning and I examine, okay, he's given a command to love, boom, he's given a command not to love. But right in the middle of it is this, this passage about children and fathers and young men and you know this and you know that and what is he doing with it and so as i began to study as i began to to meditate i'd come to the conclusion that here's what john's doing right he's giving this overall cohesive exhortation on to love to not love right but in the middle of it verses 12 through 14 he pauses and he pauses for the purpose to reaffirm and to refocus those to whom he is writing. He pauses to reaffirm who they are in Christ. He pauses to refocus them on his message, but even greater than his message, it's his desire to refocus them on Christ as they consider who they are in Christ. And as I begin to think of this tactic, what, what John was doing here, this, this pause, I begin to think, you know what, wait a minute. We do this. We do what, what John did, right? He's giving this overall exhortation, right? Love, don't love. But in the middle of it, he takes, his, he takes a pause. And this is how we do, this is how I do it. And I'm sure as, as parents, as children, right? As, as individuals who deal with other individuals, at times we do this. I was thinking, you know what? I've done this uh, in the past when I'm exhorting my children, right? Uh, maybe I'm disciplining them. Maybe I'm just exhorting them to, to good behavior. Maybe I'm teaching them something. And I'm trying to explain something to my child. And maybe they get it. Maybe they don't get it. Maybe their mind's wandering. And in the middle of my exhortation, I stop and I say, Son, I want you to know that I love you. Listen, I'm not, I'm not just simply teaching you this or telling you this because I, I, I want to hear myself speak, okay? Um, but, but you're my son. And I love you and I, I care about you. God, as your father, and him as my father, has, has commanded me, right, to raise you in such a way that would honor him and would glorify him. And I want, I want you to grow up to know, to know him, right? That, that's, why I'm, that's why I'm telling you this. Do, do, you want, do you understand? Your kid's listening and they're like, yeah, dad, I, I get it. Okay, and then what do I do? I go back to the lesson, the exhortation, the admonishment, whatever it was I was uh, doing with them, right? I took, I took that pause to what? To, to reaffirm them, right? I took that pause to refocus them, okay? And so that's what John is doing in this passage in verses 12 through 14, 14 right? He pauses to refocus his readers, to reaffirm his readers, to, to reaffirm us, right? Who we are in Christ, to refocus us, not just simply on the message, but to refocus us on Christ. And when he does this, what he's essentially doing, and I've titled this sermon, The Stages of, of Spiritual Growth. What he does is he, he, he addresses believers, one which is the first stage of spiritual growth, that you are a, a believer, okay? 
First stage is to get saved. And then he addresses children, young men, and fathers. Okay? And this children, young men, and fathers are, are three stages of spiritual growth for all, all believers okay, that one may find him or herself in. So when he's addressing young men, right, he's addressing young ladies too, spiritually speaking. And when he addresses fathers, spiritually speaking, as a, as a stage of growth, he's addressing mothers as well. Again, now understand that he's using masculine terminology to do this, but he's addressing all of us here, right? Guys and gals. So keep that in mind as, as we consider this passage this morning as he addresses children and young men and, and fathers. And we're going we're gonna to look at it. It's going to be kind of out of order as far as scripture is concerned, but we're going to examine children first, and then we're going to examine young men, and then we're going to examine fathers as well. So let me read um, again verses 12 through 14. Apostle John says, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. And I write to you, young men, because you are strong. Now it starts in verse 12 and he says, I am writing to you little children because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. Remember in chapter two, right? He began chapter two, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may what? Not sin, right? Again, the word for little children that John uses is technion. Again, we said that, that he wasn't being condescending in his speech at the beginning of chapter two when he said, ah, I'm writing you little children. Here now as he addresses us, as little children, again, he's not being condescending. I, again, in our culture, I think we would, we would tend to view it that way. But we consider the word technion. Technion, and its most generic, means this. It means born ones. It means offspring, offspring of all ages. It would be a way that I would address my children. I would say technion, right? We translate that little children. It means born one. It means offspring. In my case, it would be my offspring. 40 years from now, when my children are grown adults, right? It would be appropriate to still say, technion, my little children, my, my born ones, offspring, right? That's what, that's what John is saying. And so he starts this address in verse 12, and he says, I'm writing to you, technion, born ones. Who are the born ones? Those of us born of God. Those of us born again, believers. I'm writing to you, Believers, that's what he's saying. Those of you who are born again, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. You know, we need to be reminded of that, don't we? That your sins are forgiven. Your sins. If, if, if you are a born one, if you have repented and in turning from sin have turned to Christ, and faith, trusting in him alone for salvation. Your sins are forgiven. And John says they've been forgiven for his name's sake. I want to look at some passages this morning that just reaffirm the fact that as born ones, our sins have been forgiven. Let's start in the Psalms. Let's go to Psalm 32.
Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2. David says, and he's speaking about us as a born one, as you as a born one, those who are saved. He says, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. And blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. As believers, that's us. Blessed are we. Blessed are you. Blessed am I as believers. Why? Because our sins have been forgiven. Because the Lord, what? Counts no sin against us. Because why? Because he counted it against Christ. Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. They are red like crimson. They shall become like wool. You know, I was thinking about that passage this week as I was studying, and my my sin is as scarlet, right? Your sin is as scarlet. Even as believers, right? Our sin is still sin, right? Our sin is still wretchedness. Our sin is still unrighteousness, and it's ours, right? But yet, because of Christ... When God looks upon us, does he see it? No, he doesn't see it, does he? What does he see? He sees the righteousness of Christ. And it's the righteousness of Christ covering my scarlet sin, right? Covering your scarlet sin, if you will. It's the righteousness of Christ making us look as though what? We are white as snow. Remember that. John is reminding us that this morning, right? Little ones, tech neons, beloved, right? Beloved, remember, right? Your sins have been forgiven. Let's go to the New Testament. Let's go to um, Acts. Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10, verses, or verse, I'm sorry, 43. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him, right? To everyone who puts their faith in Christ, who trusts in Christ alone for salvation, Receives what? Forgiveness of sins through his name. Little ones, your sins have been forgiven for his name's sake. Let's go to Colossians. Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. 
He, God, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Beloved, your sins are forgiven. Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation. None. None at all. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Do you get that? Little ones. Technion. Born once, Christian, believer, your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. And as a result, what? There is no condemnation for you. So we are saved. Believers are saved from what? From our sin, yes. From God's wrath, yes. Listen, let's consider this morning. We are saved for God. John says, little ones, your sins are forgiven. And he says, your sins are forgiven for what? For your sake. Because you're such good people. Right? No. John says, your sins are forgiven. What an incredible reality. I mean, what an incredible reality that as a believer, my sins, your sins have been forgiven. They are no more, right? As far as what? The East is from the West. But you know what I think is even a, a greater reality is the fact that our sins have been forgiven, not for my sake, but for God's sake. That we've been saved and we've been saved, not for Nate, We've been saved for God. We've been saved by God. We've been saved for God. And in fact, we're going to see that we've been saved from God. So let's look at, let's look at that this morning, that we are first saved by God. Okay? We are saved by God. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. I know that most of us know this verse, right? I think we need to be reminded of this verse. We're actually going to look at Ephesians 2, uh, 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, right? It is a gift of God. You didn't save yourself. You can't save yourself. Nobody can save themselves. In fact, it's what? It's a gift of God. Not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We are saved for God. We are, in fact, saved by God. So we're saved by God. Romans 5 tells us that we're saved, in fact, from God. So let's look at Romans chapter 5. Romans 5, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 11. It's not till I think, 10 and 11 that explains this, but for a greater context, we're going to look at verses 1, um, 
1 through 11 of Romans chapter 5. So we're saved by God. And here we're going to see that we're saved, in fact, from God. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in a hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him. So we're saved by him. Saved what? From the wrath of God. For if, we were, for if, we, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son... Much more now that we are reconciled. Shall we be saved by his life? More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Listen, we're saved by God, and in fact, we're saved, we're saved from him. We're saved from his righteous wrath. And I know we say a lot of times, oh, I'm saved from my sins, right? I mean, and we are, right? I mean, Romans 6.22, right, explains, Paul says that we're no longer to be slaves of sin, right? But in fact, slaves of Christ, slaves of, of righteousness. So in that, yes, we can say that when God saved me, when God saved you, I mean, he saved me from my sin, and that I'm no longer a slave to sin, but I'm, I'm a slave to, to Christ, a slave to righteousness. But, but greater than that, God saved me from, he saved me from himself. He saved me from the wrath that I deserve as a result of my sin. And as John proclaims here in this passage, saved by God, saved from God. In fact, John says what? You were saved for God. Let's look at Psalm 25, 11. Psalm 25, 11. David cries out and he says, For your name's sake, O Lord, for your sake, O God, pardon my guilt, for it is great. He doesn't say for me, God, for my sake, I want to be forgiven. I mean, I do. I mean, I mean we should want to, right? But David doesn't cry out, for my sake, O Lord, save me. He says, God, for your sake, save me. Psalm 106, 8. Psalm 106, 8 says, Yet he saved them, yet God saved them for his name's sake, that he might make known his mighty power. 
Isaiah 43, 25. Isaiah 43, 25, God says, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions, your sin, your sins, for my own sake, for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Romans 1, 5. Paul, in regards to his ministry, his mission as apostle, missionary, pastor, says, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among the nations. Paul says, I'm I'm this missionary apostle to the Gentiles that they might be saved for, for God's sake. You see, God forgives sinners, not because we deserve it, not because there's worth or there's anything in us worth being saved, right? We know that, that there's, there's not. But God forgives sinners because it glorifies him as his grace and his mercy is made known. That's why God saves. That's why God saved you. Because it glorified himself. To save you. Even better than the fact that, that our sins have been forgiven, the fact that God has saved me and somehow saving me, he's glorified himself. I mean, think about this for a minute, right? Okay. For an unrepentant person to die and to rightfully experience from an eternal perspective God's wrath, right? For a person to go to hell. God is glorified. I mean, we get that, right? When God's justice is executed, he is glorified. So yes, it glorifies God for sinners, unrepentant sinners, to go to hell. For those of us who are saved, had God not saved you, right? It would bring him glory for you, for me, to spend an eternity in hell. And yet, somehow, and this, this to me is just mind-blowing, amazing, somehow it actually brought God and brings God more glory to save me. So had God not saved me, right, he'd be glorified in that. He'd be glorified my eternal punishment. And yet by, by saving me, by saving you, it somehow brings him more glory. Unbelievable. And it's not because of me. That's the thing. And it's not because of you. It's because of his manifestation, if you will, of his grace and his mercy. I mean, are, are you amazed by that? You should be. I am, I am amazed by that reality. How God could it glorify yourself to save me. And not because it's me, but, but I deserve, I deserve hell. I deserve an eternity apart from God in torment. 
And yet, and yet he's glorifying himself, or he glorified himself by saving me, and he did the same for you. Be, be amazed by that. So John has been challenging, and we've, we've looked at this really from, from the beginning of, of 1 John, right? He's been challenging the church to what? Examine themselves, right? There's been some false teaching going on, right? So examine yourself, right? And he's not calling people out saying, well, you're, you're all not believers, and I'm, no, right? He knows that he's writing, and there are unbelievers that are in his audience. There's unbelievers in our audience. There's going to be, right? But I'm writing to a believing audience, a professing audience. But he's been challenging us to examine ourselves, right? And he'll continue that, right? But he's also been encouraging the church, us, and our faith, right? So what John writes here applies to us. I'm writing to you little children, technion, born ones 2,000 years ago today because your sins have been forgiven for God's name's sake. What a reality that we have. I mean, really, what a reality what, that we have. But, but here's, here's the question. Here's what I've been asking myself for the past week. Here's what I want you to ask yourself as well. Do you live in, in light of this reality? I mean, you realize the, the greatest, as a believer, as a believer, I, you, we, the greatest the greatest need in our life has, has been addressed. Not only has it been addressed, it's been dealt with, forgiven. As far as the east is from the west, forgiven. But when was the last time that you really, you really pondered that? You really, you really considered that? Oh, my sins have been forgiven. They've been forgiven for God's glory, for God's sake. His, his wrath against me has been satisfied. I mean, does anything really compare to that? So here's the question. Complete my statement or, or answer the question. I don't know if it's going to be a question or a statement, all right? But what in life compares to the reality that God's wrath against you has been satisfied? Nothing. Nothing can compare to that. So how do we deal with that practically on a daily basis? What about when we experience heartache and we experience disappointment? We experience trials and tribulations. It stinks. Don't get me wrong. I mean, heartache is real. Pain is real. Trials are real. Tribulations are real. But in the grand scheme of it, does that compare to the fact that your sin has been dealt with? And as far as God is concerned, it's gone. It doesn't even exist. You know, I, I'll be honest, confession time here. I can't remember the last time that I've had a bad day, that something bad has happened, maybe legitimately. I know most of the time, you know, we think we're experiencing trials and tribulations and sometimes it's legit and other times it's just self-pity and we just feel bad for ourselves, right? I can't remember the last time that, that, that I experienced legitimate trouble, legitimate trial, legitimate whatever, where I stopped in the midst of it and said, but you know what? God's wrath against me has been dealt with. And that would be a whole lot worse position to be in right now, right? I could be lost as the day is long. My life could be required of me tonight. And that's it. But you know what? It's been dealt with. 
So as believers, beloved, technion, little ones, let's live in light of this reality that our sins have been forgiven. They've been forgiven for his name's sake. Verse 13 of John, uh, 1 John chapter 2, he says, I'm writing to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you young men because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you children because you know the father. 14, I write to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. And I write to you young men because you are strong. So John in verse 13 addresses children again, right? He says, I write to you children because you know the father. Now, Verses 13 and 14. Verse 12, he's dealing with believers, all believers. No matter where you are spiritually, technion, all believers, period. Okay? Now, verses 13 and 14 is where he deals with these, we'll say, levels, stages, if you will, of spiritual growth. Children, young men, fathers. And the word he uses for children in verse 13 is different than the word that he uses for children in verse 12. The word he uses is padion. It means infant, one who was just born, or one who is immature. In this case, spiritually immature, right? So he's dealing with spiritually immature believers, most likely many who are new believers. So one who is a new believer, a new convert, right, is a padion, is a, is a child, Right? Or one who is spiritually immature, maybe not a new believer, maybe a long-time believer, but yet spiritually immature is a pation. Now consider this. I mean, a newborn Christian, he says what? He says, I'm writing you children because you know the Father. A newborn Christian or an immature Christian knows the Father like a newborn baby knows his father. Let's consider that for a minute. I mean, most of us in here, many of us have, have our parents, right? And so we can experientially relate being a parent, right? But many of us who aren't parents have had younger siblings, right? Or friends who have had babies. And so we can all, all relate, right? And as a parent of a young child, what? Your baby knows you, doesn't it? Baby's crying, okay? I'm holding baby. Baby's not mine. Baby's crying. Baby's like four months old. Baby's crying. What do I do? Hand a baby to mommy, hand baby to daddy, and what happens? Baby stops crying. Not always, but a lot of times, right? Why? The baby knows it's mama. The baby knows it's daddy, right? But what do they know about it's mama? Or what does he or she know about it's daddy? Not much, right? I mean, a newborn baby that knows it's mom or knows his or her mom, right? And that's really all that it knows. This is my mom. Doesn't know what your middle name is. You know, it doesn't even know what your first name is. Doesn't know where you grew up. Doesn't know what your favorite food is. Doesn't know what the deepest desire of your heart is, right? Doesn't know what your fears are. Doesn't know where your joys are, right? And those who have young babies, you know what I'm talking about. But your babies know you, right? And so that's what John is saying here, that, that pations, right? Those who are spiritually immature, they know the father, like a, a newborn baby knows its parent, okay? Now, there is, of course, um, inherent weakness with infants, with children, young children. They require special care and attention due to their ignorance, their lack of discernment 
Ephesians. Let's look at Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians 4, verses um, 14 and 15. So that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful screams, schemes, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. So spiritual children, pations, infants, have this tendency, what? To be tossed to and fro, what? By the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness, in deceitful schemes, right? This is inherent nature of a spiritual child. Spiritual child needs, what? Growth. Let's look at Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews chapter 5, verses 12, 14. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. So, so John is addressing what? In this first part here, he says, children, you know the father, spiritually immature believers who lack discernment, right? Who lack spiritual growth, who have a, a tendency due to, to ignorance, if you will, right? Due to this lack of discernment, due to their attention to detail, if you will, when it comes to doctrine and theology, they have this tendency to be tossed to and fro. But here's the thing, all right? John isn't saying this to beat up those who are spiritually immature. Here's the thing. What does he say? But you know the Father. You know the Father. So spiritual children, yes, you are prone to this, right? But you know the Father. That's a good position to be in, isn't it? So what is he doing? Again, we said that he's, he's reaffirming them and he's refocusing them, right? He's reaffirming that as a believer, your sins are forgiven. As an immature believer, man, you know the Father. You know the Father. So he's reaffirming their position in Christ and he's refocusing them, and he's refocusing them on Christ because what? A child needs to do what? Those of us who have young kids, what do we want our kids to do? We want them to grow, don't we? We want to see them mature, don't we? And, and we do. And that's what John's desire is, to see these pations, these, these immature Christians, to grow in Christ. Next group he addresses is young men. Verse 13, I'm writing you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. And verse 14, he says, I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. These aren't new Christians. So one, the young man is, is not a new Christian, right? And the young man is not what? A spiritually immature 
Christian, right? Now, now here's the thing, right? Let's just stop for a second and think about maturity when it comes to being a believer. Nobody this side of heaven has arrived. I mean, we get that, don't we? Right? We're all maturing. We should all be maturing, right? And even the most maturist believers, like I can in my mind think of all right, some of these pastors that, you know, that, that are well-known and are godly men and extremely mature believers. Listen, they haven't arrived. Right? Until God calls them home or he returns, right? They haven't arrived. They're not fully mature, right? It's sanctification, right? We are being sanctified. We should be in that position, right? But we won't be fully sanctified. Positionally, yes, right? But progressively, we won't be fully sanctified until heaven, right? It's Christian maturity, right? So nobody has arrived. It is a process that should be a lifelong process. So this young, these young men, right? Young ladies, we know who we're talking about. Maturing Christians, right? Haven't arrived, but they are what? They're strong and the word of God abides in them. Listen, the young man that John addresses here has a theological, the maturing believer, has a theological and doctrinal foundation. This person has a biblical worldview. Let's look at Psalm. We're going to look at three, three different verses here that, that describe in part this maturing believer. So we'll start at Psalm 1. Psalm 1, verses 1 and 2. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on the law he meditates day and night. The maturing believer not only spends time in the word, meditates on it, but what? Delights in the word. So look at 2 Timothy. Second Timothy, verse, uh, sorry, chapter 2, verse 15. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who need not be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. The maturing believer is one who what rightly, accurately, accurately handles the word of God. It's the maturing believer. Let's look at Ephesians. Let's go back to Ephesians chapter 4. We looked at it a few moments ago. We're going to look at it again. Ephesians 4 verse 14 through 16. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather... We speak the truth in love. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that builds up itself in love. Loved. So here's the thing, okay? Children tossed to and fro, right? The, the maturing believer, having a solid doctrinal theological foundation is not prone 
to what? Being tossed to and fro by this greatest new book or that greatest new book or by this new teaching or that new teaching. No, no, some new books are great. Some new teachings are, are, I mean, we're, we're talking about good stuff here, right? But there are many more things out there, many new ideas and teachings and doctrines and theologies that are not so great. The maturing believer is grounded in the truth. Okay? There are many in Christendom, right, who hold positions of, I'll say prominence. I mean, we're talking teachers, we're talking pastors, we're talking leaders, whatever the case might be, right? Maybe they've been believers or professing believers for a long period of time. And yet when you examine their theology, right, when you examine the doctrines that they hold forth, they're not on solid ground, but they're on sinking sand, right? They're chasing after this new book or that new book, right? I mean, we just need to go down the road and look at church signs and whatever the newest, latest and greatest book is, that's our new sermon series. This is our new sermon series. Well, there's this new book by this guy that thinks we should do this. And so we're going to just, we're just going to do that. Oh, well, you know, he wound up not being so good. So we're going to go over here and we're going to do that, right? I mean, I can remember growing up at a church that was like that, right? We're doing this guy's new book as a sermon series. And six months later, when that guy comes out with a scandal, it's like, oh, okay, we're, we're going to go ahead and put that to the side. But this new guy over here, or this new whatever over here, we're going to do that. And then six months later, when that guy is marked by a scandal, oh, well, we're going to go here, we're going to do that. And, and what are they doing? They're being tossed to and fro by this wave and by that wave. Listen, that's a characteristic of not a mature believer, but what? A technion. An immature believer, a child. So how do we gauge whether or not a believer is a mature believer, an immature believer, whatever the case might be, right? It's that they are grounded theologically and doctrinally. They are grounded what? In the Word of God. So what do we do when we encounter this person or that person or this teaching or that teaching? We examine what they say against Scripture. Now, he says concerning these young men, he says that they've overcome the evil one. Now, what, what does he mean, overcome the evil one? That they've overcome sin and temptation? No. Right. Remember back when I preached through James, right? James in chapter 1, verse 14, addressed sin and basically said, I'm going to summarize here, um, you don't need Satan to sin. You do a good enough job on your own, right? I mean, that's what he said, right? You know, he, he's, he's not concerned about tempting you to sin because... Uh, You've got that kind of nailed all by yourself, okay? So, so that's not what John is addressing here when he says, you've overcome the evil one. What, is he, what he's saying is, listen, the maturing believer, the young man, the maturing believer uh, is able, as a result of theological and doctrinal foundation, able to refute and stand firm against what? False theology. False doctrines. Errant teaching. The maturing believer is able not only to stand firm against it, but is also able to refute it while proclaiming truth. So this is the young man. Now, finally, the most spiritually mature, right, the fathers. Back in 1 John 13 and 14. I'm writing to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. The most spiritually mature have a more comprehensive and theological and doctrinal precision than young men. They're able to recognize, able to refute error while proclaiming the truth, just as the young men. But what really sets apart the most mature and still maturing 
right, believer, is that they, they know the Father. Not like, not like the little child who just recognizes his face, right? But the most mature believer has a deep knowledge of the Father and experiences intimate worship of the Father with the Father. Their relationship with God is, is full and it's rich, right? They have a deep satisfaction with God. And again, the only way I can, I can even begin to try to relate, to explain, and, and I know that this doesn't, not, not everybody fits into this category, right? And so you could substitute father, you could substitute mother, you could substitute spouse, you could substitute brother or sister, right? You, you, you start dating somebody, right? You get married and you think you know them, right? And even 15 years later, though you know them even more intimately and have a deeper relationship, right? It's continuing to grow. It's continuing to get deeper. And looking back, you can see that, that progression, right? Uh, we can, some of us can see that with parents. Some of us can see that with siblings or friends, right? So you understand they have a deep, intimate relationship. Right? So the most mature believer has that with the Father. So, so here's, here's the question. I always ask myself this. Um, so what do I do with this? I mean, it's great to study Scripture, um, I enjoy it. I enjoy preaching. I, I enjoy teaching. But what do we do with this? And I know as, as we teach and as we preach and as these things happen, there are things that we think about, right, which is application, right? There's application that will come out naturally. Sometimes it needs to come out explicitly, right? John takes this pause and says, all right, I'm giving you this exhortation to love, to not love. All right, now I'm going to stop. I'm going to reaffirm. I'm going to refocus. So, so what, do we, what do we do with that? Here, now, what do we do with these three verses? Well, I mean, the first thing that I think we have to ask ourselves is, can you identify yourself in this group? Right? Believer, child, young men, father. Can you identify yourself in that group? And if you can't identify yourself in that group, then you're not in that group. And your only response is to repent, to believe, to be saved, to be a technion, right? And to be a padneon or a padion, right? I know most of us in here, believe most of us in here, right? not our young children, but adults, right? All professing believers probably can identify ourselves. Yes, I'm, I'm a technion, right? I'm a little child. I'm a born one. Praise God, I'm a born one. Where do I fit? My, my child? Right? Do I just know the Father? Am I a young man growing in truth? My ability to accurately handle Scripture, my love for it? Am I, am I a father? See, here's the thing. Biologically speaking, we have children, right? I mean, many of us have had children. Some of us have adult children, right? And even if we don't, even if we never will, we have loved ones that do. We were babies at one point, right? Every one of us were biologically born at some point. And what happened? We grew, didn't we? We matured. Now, now we know some of us grow, right, at different rates. Not just dimensionally, but even from a, a psychologically mature perspective. But we grow, don't we? I mean, and, and, and our growth naturally and for the most part, psychologically, socially, whatever you want to throw in there, 
I mean, it just happens, doesn't it? Not, not necessarily the case with these stages of growth that, that John is addressing as far as spiritual growth. Right? There are people who are saved, who are spiritually immature, and live the vast majority of their lives spiritually immature. So I think the thing is to ask one, where am I? My child? My young man or my father? Where am I? Right? Where am I going? Where do I want to be? Listen, I want to, I want to mature spiritually. Right? Again, we can think of this as sanctification. I want to be sanctified. I want to be more and more like Christ. I want you to be more and more like Christ. I want you to grow spiritually. I want all of us to grow spiritually. But it doesn't happen naturally in the sense that biological growth happens. Something that we must desire. My kids don't desire physical growth. They grow. They eat, they grow. They eat, they grow. They eat, they grow. Right? Something that as believers, spiritually, we must, we must desire. We must actively seek to grow spiritually. Understanding that we'll never arrive this side of heaven. But nonetheless, we want to grow. This week, examine yourself. Where are you? Are you, are you, are you even, in the, even in the group? Can you identify yourself? If you can't, again, repent, believe, be saved. If you can, one, rejoice. Because why? Your sins have been forgiven. And not only rejoice, but examine yourself and your desire for spiritual growth. This is where I am. And God, this is where I want to be. But I need you to do it. Because that's the other thing. I can't do it. I I can't do it. You can't do it. I want us to grow spiritually. But we need God to do that in us. We need God to do that through us. Let's ask him now to do that in our lives. Father, again, we thank you for your word. We thank you for uh, speaking to us through your word, for glorifying yourself, one, in our salvation. The fact that we get to gain by your glory is just, it's mind-boggling, and it's mind-boggling awesomeness. And so we thank you, and we praise you, Lord, for your salvation that we are technions, that we are born ones, that our sins have been forgiven. Lord, it is, my, it is my desire, one, that you would save the lost among us. Lord, I think of our little children uh, that aren't safe because cognitively they can't grasp just cognitively some of these things. We, we understand that. But yet it's my desire, God, for them that you would save them, that you would do it for your glory, that you would do it for their good. Lord, for the believers among us, it's, it's my desire that you would continue your sanctifying work in our lives, that we would grow up in spiritual maturity, that we wouldn't live our lives as, as infants spiritually, but that we would grow to be young men, that we would grow then to be fathers, and even as mature believers, Jesus, that we would seek to mature even more, that we would seek to love you even more, to know you even more, to grasp a hold of you even more tightly as we forsake this world, its systems, its desires. God, I want this for us, for your church. 
And again, I do want it for our good. But more than that, God, I want it for your glory. Again, Lord, we thank you. We praise you, Jesus. We love you. We are here because of you. And we are here for you. And it is, Lord Jesus, in your your precious name, your holy name, that we collectively ask these things, pray these things, desire these things this morning. Amen.